If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. He is one of the people, one of the private citizens of 18th century London and Britain, who in a way is inventing British public life and British public institutions. This is the biggest story of the period. It's where our institutions come from. That was James Del Borgo talking about Hans Sloan and the founding of the British Museum. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about Hans Sloan the 18th century collector and natural historian, whose collection became the core of the British Museum, which opened just a few years after his death. Sloane's life story has recently been revisited by the historian and author James Del Borgo of Rutgers University, New Jersey. James is the author of a new book entitled Collecting the World, The Life and Curiosity of Hans Sloane, and on a recent visit to London, he met with our deputy editor, Charlotte Hodgman. Hans Sloan, um, I mean, he's the founder of probably one of Britain's most famous museums, but he's, he's not actually that well known, is he? Who actually was Hans Sloan? Hans Sloan was from Ulster and he was a doctor and he was born in Ireland in 1660 and he, as a young man, moves to London and trains as a botanist and as a physician. He also trains in Paris. So he becomes part of this learned world of the 17th and the 18th century. And one of the remarkable things about him, of course, is that we have so many London streets named after him, Sloan Square, Sloan Avenue, and so on. And early on, I thought, uh, you know, he's really this pillar of the establishment. He's a London figure, absolutely. But it turns out he's from Ulster, and it turns out he had links to many other parts of the world, and he made himself into part of the establishment. He wasn't born that way. So he's an outsider who makes his way and has a spectacular success in the capital. So just maybe put um, sort of London in the context of the time. So was there a massive passion for collecting at the time? Because I always think of the Victorians as being the kind of the collectors. Absolutely. And this is a lot earlier. It is. This is, in some ways, I think, for many people, will be the prehistory mm. of a lot of things that we associate with the Victorians in the 19th century. That's what we tend to remember about Britain and the wider world and the empire. And Sloan takes us back to... Uh, collecting, science, colonisation, global trade, all intensifying at the end of the 17th century and through that early part of of the 18th century. So it is 
a story of the rise of this guy from Ulster, but it's also the story of uh, London's expansion into a great commercial city and increasingly the city at, a, at the heart of an empire. Mm. So the world is sort of beginning to open up to, to people. That's right, that's right. And collecting is part of this. I mean, mm. collecting is one way to make sense of all the different specimens, objects, curiosities, peoples that British traders in places like uh, the Americas, in North America, in the West Indies, in India, and to some extent in China, uh, British travellers, um, British colonists encountering lots of new uh, plant species, animal species, and, and cultures. And so collecting is one really important way, and this is one of the reasons why Sloan is so important, one really important way in which people were starting to try and draw a picture of, of what that world was like. Okay. What actually did he collect? I mean, I know he had, you said he was a, he had a passion for botany um, and he was obviously a doctor as well. Did that, did those, those passions influence his, what he wanted to collect? Very much so. It starts with plants. I mean, we think of the British Museum and that is, of course, Sloane's greatest legacy, but his plant specimens uh, that he collected uh, still survive and they're in the Natural History Museum in South Kensington. Uh, as, as part of the Sloan Herbarium. That, in a way, is Sloan's spiritual home. He was trained originally as an apothecary. That meant he was doing a kind of plant-based medicine um, and was basically really interested in could we find amazing new drugs that we don't know about from other, plants, uh, other parts of the world that would dramatically improve our medicine. Okay, so so he wasn't collecting this for collecting's sake. He actually wanted to do something with these things yeah, that he was collecting. Yeah. Did he travel himself to to collect? I mean, did he or did he have a sort of a network of people who would source these these things for him? Well, he did travel himself, and then later on, he did develop a massive network of of other people to do this work for him. So crucially, when he's still a relatively young man, uh, around the age of twenty seven or so he becomes physician to the new governor of Jamaica. And so Hans Sloan spends about 15 months in the West Indies, in Jamaica, and this is really a foundation for his entire career. So he does collect a large number of plants and even animal specimens. I mean, a, an amazingly difficult thing to do at that time mm -hmm. with the heat and the humidity of the climate. You've got to imagine this guy there in the 1680s, um, very carefully pressing plants between choirs of paper, putting animals, everything from, from lizards to, to insects, into little uh, bottles filled with liquor, filled with rum and brandy to preserve them. And Sloan is really amazing at uh, being a disciplined collector. And of course, the crucial thing is that Jamaica is a slave society, it is right at this time that Jamaica is becoming important to the British Empire. Slave labor is starting to be very profitable, growing cacao, growing sugar, other uh, 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 lucrative crops like this. So Sloan benefits from all of that. And we know, uh, because he writes about it, that when he's in Jamaica, he gets a lot of help from planters and he gets a lot of help from enslaved men and women that he talks to and asks them about their knowledge of the flora and the fauna of the island. He brings back a huge amount of stuff to London when he comes back in 1689. 
and on the basis of this publishes a lavish, illustrated, two-volume natural history of Jamaica that has these amazing full-size engravings of Jamaica plant specimens and animals as well. So basically what he did for people in Britain and people in Europe was to bring back a lot of specimens and artefacts, write about them, but also have them drawn so that you could be sitting in London in 1707 and trust that you were getting a really accurate picture of what grew in the colony of Jamaica. Yeah. Um, Was it just um, sort of plants and, and animals that he was collecting while he was out there? No, it wasn't. And this is a great question because it it raises this issue of what kind of science did they Mm. practice at the time? And this was the science of natural history. But in that period, natural history had uh, what they described as a universal um, reach. Now, what this meant was Sloan collected plant and animal specimens, but also human-made artefacts of many different kinds as part of natural history. Mm. We don't think of natural history that way anymore because it's it's changed since the 19th to 20th century with the specialisation of modern knowledge. Sloan, again, is before all of that. So if you think of the Victorians, they are more specialised and a bit more categorical. Sloan is doing everything as people (laughs) did at that time. So just to give you one example, one amazing thing that he brings back is that he actually collects musical instruments that were played by enslaved men and women. And he actually, more than anyone else at the time, has written down music played by slaves that he hears when he's in, when he's in Jamaica. This was part of natural history. This was part of documenting everything that was curious and potentially useful about a place like Jamaica. Because he even um, collected sort of, other slave-related items, you know, whips and sort of bullets that were fired at slave owners and things like that. I mean, were these are these things that he thought people would want to know about and see? I mean, was that a sort of curiosity of the time? It, again, a very good question and a difficult one, I think, mm. to, to answer. Where does this fit in the story? Um, you can see Sloan as a very disciplined collector, which he was, but this is also a time when the categories of knowledge are sort of expanding and even bursting because of all these different things coming in. So my favourite Sloan catalogue, where he wrote down the details of all that he owned, is called simply Miscellaneous Things. And uh, some of those uh, articles that you mentioned, so, and, and of course these are, are you know, quite shocking and striking uh, objects, whips and nooses, uh, that were used in the in actually the torture and execution of slaves as part of what you know the, the British made Jamaica into at the time. I mean, those objects are in his miscellaneous things um, catalogue. So it's a time when knowledge is expanding, and these items all could have different kinds of significance. So let me give you let me give you an example. And this is one of the reasons I find so uh, Sloan so fascinating. One of those objects is a what he calls a manatee strap. Now, this was a whip for beating slaves, but it was made from the hide of the manatee or the sea cow. Now, the interesting thing about that is that, okay, so why was he interested? He was probably interested because he was documenting Jamaica, but it's, it's not 
only that he was doing that, he was probably interested also in that this whip was made from the hide of a sea cow. So, you know, again, we tend to think today of natural specimens or artificial objects, man-made objects, and these have been divided into different museums. For Sloan, the same object could be both a natural specimen and an artificial curiosity. Other thing to add there is that while Sloan is the key man at the center, we know from his correspondence that there were many people who knew about him and who sent him things unsolicited, thinking, I know Sir Hans, I know of his interest in, in Jamaica, um, and it should be added, of course, that Sloan married a woman called Elizabeth Langley Rose, who had um, inherited her first husband's slave estates in Jamaica. So sugar money uh, produced by slavery brings money into the family. In other words, Sloan has a lifelong connection to the West Indies. A lot of people know that. And they're making judgments. And this can be merchants or other collectors. Oh, I think, I think Sloan would be interested in this because I know he's published this amazing natural history of Jamaica. So other people added to these collections. So he was, he was well-known then um, as a collector. Was he a respected collector? He was very famous. I mean, it's very ironic for us today. We're, we're in the process of rediscovering who Hans Sloan was, despite the British Museum, Sloan Square and all the rest of it. In the first half of the 18th century in London, Sloan was the most famous society physician, the wealthiest, and had many friends and enjoyed the company of many learned colleagues in the taverns and coffee houses of, of London in what was a very clubbable age. But probably because he became very wealthy and very powerful, he did uh, acquire enemies and rivals. And because his collection was so varied and because he did have this really very um, extroverted, open-ended curiosity, he often collected things whose usefulness or value might not be clear at first. So, so, for example, he became president of the Royal Society. And at the Royal Society, he was in charge of editing the journal, the Philosophical Transactions. And this was basically the leading scientific journal in Britain at the time. So he would publish many articles about strange and curious things. And one of these objects um, that was strange and curious was a set of things from China. It was a, a sort of mini surgical cabinet. And one of the items it included uh, was a set of uh, ear pickers or <laughs> ear ticklers. <laughs> An interesting example <laughs> of being curious about stuff that's out there. After this is published in the Philosophical Transactions, Sloan is then mercilessly satirized by the Jonathan Swift type satirists of this age. And they lampoon him uh, quite remorselessly and just say, you know, this can't take this guy seriously. Who is this person at the Royal Society just bringing all this exotic junk in? I mean, what's, what, what is the value of knowing, what are these ear ticklers? <laughs> There's quite a lot of snobbery then around collecting. Very much so. And I think snobbery is the perfect word. Why? Because the people that Sloan were, was bringing into his network um, were often lower class tradesmen. Very good example of this, a guy, an amazing guy called James Pettiver, 
who was an apothecary in Aldersgate. And James Pettiver managed to acquire a network of global travellers who sent him all kinds of rare specimens. Sloan made Pettiver a fellow of the Royal Society. Royal Society was a rather grand, um, wealthy club of gentlemen with interests in science and contributing to the public good. But Sloan was absolutely slaughtered for bringing this lower-class tradesman into the fellowship of this august <laughs> body. So, class, so there were really strong class dimensions to the kinds of really interesting, obscure journeymen. I mean, this is how Sloan made up his collections. He had relations with all kinds of obscure journeymen, surgeons in the East India Company, uh, people that we've never heard of, <laughs> but whose letters are all in the British Library. And brilliantly, this is something I try to bring out in the book, you can see them uh, gathering all these kinds of things and Sloan is the person. Mm. I mean, you say that he, he collected a phenomenal amount of stuff. Uh, where did he put it? Was it in his house to start off with? I mean, it must have been quite a sight. In his house, in his house, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, so we always have to remember there are no public museums in this world. This is Sloane's uh, legacy after his death in 1753. So initially, after he comes back from Jamaica, he takes up residence just off Bloomsbury Square, and the building is still there to this day. Uh, and that three- or four-storey townhouse became his private museum that became stuffed with books and manuscripts <laughs> and animal specimens and plants and strange items of all kinds, so that probably people who entered that building as friends, as personal guests, would have had to have been quite careful as they moved around not to sort of knock anything uh, over, and he turned his garden little back garden, still there, into a menagerie. You have to imagine that at the turn of 18th century London, there were a very small number of places where you could see exotic animals. There were no zoos. So we know that Sloan did get sent live animals, you know, porcupines from the Bay of Bengal, uh, various creatures from the Hudson's Bay Company in Canada, and... Sloane's garden became one of the few places where you could see strange new creatures trying to keep them alive with difficulty, trying to work out what to feed these strange beasts. But this was, this was another part of, of, of what he was doing. So he had this townhouse. The collections got bigger and bigger. He then acquired the building next door, <laughs> which is what often happens when collectors keep, doing, um, uh, keep, keep building their collections. And then ultimately, he acquires uh, a grand building called Chelsea Manor in Chelsea. And Chelsea Manor had, in fact, been the residence of King Henry VIII. Sloane is made a baronet at this time, so he becomes known as Sir Hans Sloane and also sometimes the Lord of Chelsea Manor. Mm. Chelsea is his weekend getaway, but when he retires in 1742... He moves permanently from Bloomsbury and moves the entire collection with him. Uh, and so Chelsea Manor becomes temporarily, for about 10 years or so, the place where the collection resides. On his death in 1753, the plan is to create a public museum, and it quickly becomes clear that Chelsea Manor will not be large enough for the collection 
and to admit the general public. So was that always his plan to, for, I mean, the, the collection was never really going, just going to be for his own pers- personal sort of pleasure and for showing other people. He wanted it on public display. Well, Sloan is extraordinary because, as we know, he's a private individual who ends up turning his collection into the nation's museum. This really evolved over time. Um, and, you know, doing research for the book, this question came up quite a lot. Well, where did this idea come from? And there certainly had been various kinds of precedents um, in Europe and other places in England, uh, various kinds of collection with some public aspect, but never a collection that was formally deemed uh, to belong to the people and the nation and to have a kind of um, articulation that this was an ideal that should be acted upon. So so this idea really emerged over time, I think, for Sloan, um, so that part of this is he's collecting other people's collections. Mm. He has many friends. I mean, look, you know, he's very wealthy and he lives a long time and he's very well connected. For a collector, that is perfect. When his friends... James Petiver, for example, died in 1718. It was very clear to Petiver who he wanted to inherit his collections. So Sloan acquired several collections that had already been formed, botanical collections, coin collections, by other people who knew him, who trusted him. Mm. When they died, they did not want their things to be scattered to the four corners. So Sloan amazingly evolved into this kind of public repository even while he was alive. So I think he realised, and he starts to write um, later on about the sort of public responsibility he feels. And then this almost becomes proverbial. So, you know, when a learned gentleman dies, uh, one of his friends says, oh, well, what are we going to do with his things? It's obvious. So, yeah, <laughs> Sloan. Yeah, absolutely. That's the only, that's the only place. And Sloan realised that, and that, I think, is how the, the, the idea took shape. But still, you know, in his lifetime, he is inviting people in to see the collections and to to work with them. But basically, it's a very small number. His house isn't set up for that. He's got lots of curators running the collections, and some of them do tours for dignitaries, aristos, uh, visiting uh, foreign scholars and so on. But the collections are massively underused and underseen. I mean, there's almost no pictures of any of these objects until Mm. after he's died and after the British Museum has come along. So the thing to bear in mind is that it's not just that Hans Sloan is taking on this public role, it's that the very idea of a public museum and indeed public magazines and uh, uh, public uh, sort of organs of newsprint and opinion are actually emerging at this time in the 18th century. So you could say Sloan's invention of the public museum is coming at this moment when British public life is coming into being uh, in, in a way that will go, go forward in a recognisable way. I suppose it's a way of protecting the collection. I mean, if it's all crammed into that, what I, uh, that little house. I mean, I read a lovely story about how, is it, was it Handel went and uh, infuriated him, he left a buttered crumpet or, or a muffin on a book. You yeah. know, and, you know, you, you just, I, I, mean, I would love to have seen what his house looked like, but... I suppose it's a way of kind of preserving the collection as well, keeping it in there. Yeah, very much so. And there's a very interesting moment where it appears that two thieves 
uh, tried to get into the house and to create a diversion and to, and to maybe set a fire and get people to run outside so that they could run <laughs> in and steal stuff. Mm. And, and Sloan was, was aware of this. Um, so I think this is one of the reasons why he, he was careful with whom he trusted to, to, gain, to give access to, to the collections. Um, what sort, I mean, was he an organised collector? Did he, did he sort of catalogue and did he know exactly what was in his collection or was he just kind of bringing it all in and, you know, as much as he could sort of fit in the house? If you read his catalogues, right, and he, he created great catalogues and he was very proud of them. So, you know, a fossils catalogue, a minerals catalogue, um, a, ca- a seed catalogue, so on and so forth. This is one of the reasons that I've been able to write the book because you can actually reconstruct what was there, where it came from, and have a sense of of the whole. But inevitably, I think it must have been more chaotic than that because all these new things were coming in at the same time so that after a while, I think it was just a question of finding some space where this would fit. I mean, he liked to set things out so that he would have the same kind of thing... um, presented in a series. For example, shoes. He had a large shoe collection. <laughs> so as far as we can tell, he would have had this set out, the range of shoes, so that visitors could see these differences between different cultures, different materials used, different styles, different mm. aesthetics, and so on. So that, was, that's, that is a very orderly impulse. And it's a really a kind of fundamental um, process of drawing many different varieties together so that we can tell these different things uh, apart. But still, uh, as we know, miscellaneous things, and we know also that he moved, I think we mentioned the manatee strap before. I think we we know from some of the paperwork that he would sometimes move things from one place to another, and certain objects that he had were so strange and curious and just bizarre that he often didn't know where to catalogue them or had forgotten that he catalogued them in one place and they showed up <laughs> somewhere else. So, for example, a coral-encrusted spa from a sunken Spanish galleon that was retrieved from the depths of the Caribbean Sea. Yeah. There's mention of that in the corals catalogue for the coral, but it also shows up in miscellaneous <laughs> things because it's just so odd. There's a wonderful line from... Uh, someone who says, one of his friends and contemporaries, who basically thinks, um, I don't think Sir Hans really knows at this point what is in his collection. So museums had existed in some form, you know, since the sort of ancient times. What's kind of original about Sloane and, and his museum? Or is there anything original? No, that's a good, that is very true. That, that's, that's important, right? The idea of the museum goes back to the ancient world, Alexandria, Museum, Temple of the Muses, Aristotle's School at Athens, the Great Library in Alexandria in the ancient world, in the medieval period, uh, the so-called Wunderkammer or the Wonder Chambers, uh, which were princely uh, aristocratic spaces. The courts of Europe, um, royal families, aristocrats, were um, centuries previous to Sloan already gathering you know, Mexican feathers and samples of, 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 of what travellers brought back from very remote places. So there's a great tradition of curiosity cabinets, and Sloan is part of that tradition. He certainly doesn't invent that. I think he's at a moment where 
it's his commercial connections and it's this expansion of the British Empire and his personal wealth means that he, as a private individual, he's not a prince, he's not a, a fancy someone, he's somebody who's made his way up, become wealthy as a doctor, and then has many friends in the East India Company, the South Sea Company, and so on, and he can use those contacts and his wealth to collect on a scale as a private individual that I think probably hadn't been seen before. And the commercial aspects of this are multiple in the sense that he's paying for a lot of these collections and these travelers know that and that's part of their incentive to, to send. But also the nature of the collections is intended to be commercially useful. When he's in Jamaica, he's really surveying the trees, the plants, the animals. You know, are these going to be new lucrative commodities? very commercially minded, and that fits really well with what Britain is at this time. It is becoming, ultimately, uh, the world's greatest commercial empire in the 18th century. So that fits really well. And I think the innovation is that set of connections, um, and he was a person who could, more than any other individual, realize or attempt to realize this goal of universal collecting, all these different things from all these different places. It's part of the divine creation. Of course, the great innovation is in his will mm. and the idea of creating a free public national museum to which all persons are entitled to go, visit the collections and use the collections. Yeah. I mean, he did give quite a lot back, didn't he, generally to society? To society. You know, he, did he, was he part of the found, uh, founding the foundling um, Absolutely. He was a well-known philanthropist mm -hmm. engaged in very extensive charitable works, co-founder of the Foundling Hospital, uh, co-sponsor of the new American colony of Georgia in the 1730s, um, treated the, f the poor free of charge um, on, on a regular basis. Of course, he was fabulously wealthy by this time. <laughs> but, you know, he is, he is one of the people, one of the private citizens of 18th century London and Britain, who in a way is inventing British public life and British public institutions. This is the biggest story of the period. It's where our institutions come from. It's, for example, how the Bank of England originated in the 1690s. Private merchants uh, and bankers got together to say, it, you know, let's create this institution. Sloan did something very similar for museums. But in fact, you know, president of the Royal Society, uh, president of the Royal College of Physicians, supporting Chelsea Physic Garden by having travellers supply seeds and plants to, to be grown in the gardens. This is an extraordinary period. And Sloan is one of the key people who is using all these connections to create British public life. So, um, so why is he largely being, not, not forgotten exactly, but why, you know, yours is the, one of the first biographies in a long time of, of Sloan. You know, why, why do we not hear more about him? I was astonished to learn that the last biography was published in 1954. And I think there's a couple of big reasons why we don't know about him. One is because his museum does not bear his name. And that's because already in his life he had accumulated other collections. And then when the British Museum is formed, still more collections get added. So it's never just Sloan, but he's at the centre. 
So in a way, it couldn't really have been called uh, the Sloan Museum. I think the other thing to say here is that a lot of this is to do with the fact that our forms of knowledge today and our institutions have become a lot more specialised. Natural history today, the Natural History Museum in South Kensington doesn't have weapons, clothing, musical instruments. They're all in the British Museum. That division of material happened in the 19th century. The Natural History Museum was started in 1881. And when it did start, all of Sloane's plants came over, but his objects stayed in the British Museum. His manuscripts then went to the British Library. So after a while, it became impossible to see the Sloane collection. Now today we have the wonderful Enlightenment Gallery in the British Museum, started in 2003, where you can see some of Sloane's objects put back together in all of their variety, shells next to feathers, next to medicinal uh, artifacts and so on. So I think Sloane disappeared in a way because he was cut up into so many different pieces because the very structure of the way we do science or anthropology became much more specialised. Final thing to say, I think, is that the connection between Sloan and slavery is a, is a difficult history. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, you know, part of my hope for the book is that this story becomes more widely known because what it shows is that, um, for example, that the people of Jamaica contributed very much to Sloan's career, his wealth uh, and his success. And this is a really important part of where actually British history beyond the British Isles feeds into how we get these great institutions. So I, I hope that story just becomes more widely known. Definitely. I mean, do you think we've lost something in a way, um, museums have lost something by splitting all these, these wonderful collections up? So we, we are, it's, you know, you go to what particular museum to see um, things. I mean, I'm thinking of the, the Pitt Rivers in Oxford is is kind of is a big collection, isn't it? And then everything is all higgledy piggledy. It's all kind of yeah. you know. Do you, do you feel that way a bit? I mean, I else? love that museum because I just love walking, and I love you don't know what you're going to come across next in, in in a drawer, you know, or you look around. I have come to feel that way. I mean, scientific work is extraordinarily specialised mm. today. That's the nature of the beast. But I think a lot of people who work in museums in recent years, Pitt Rivers is a good example, have come back to just the amazing beauty and provocation of different things being brought together. Uh, and I think there's something great in Sloane's version of natural history for that reason. So the fact that he brings plants, but many different artifacts, musical instruments, gives you a picture of Jamaica that is, in a sense, more accurate, compelling, mm. and involving than just seeing the plants or the instruments by themselves. They're part of the same world. They're uh, part of the same knowledge traditions of West African peoples in the Caribbean and British travellers like Sloan becoming interested in them. So there is a kind of wonder and, and just amazing provocation in seeing different things brought together. And I think that you know, museums have become aware of this and I hope they do more of this. Sloan is a, a great example of the value of bringing things together because specialization is important, but we miss something if we just stay in our specialized silos. Yeah. You get more of a sense of the person behind the collection as well, don't you? And their 
and, and what it was like to be a collector in that time when you've got everything, you know, what, what you sort of almost, it's like an insight into their personality of what they were collecting when it's all, you know, all together like that. Um, how do people feel about um, the British Museum being free and being made public? Um, we were talking about the snobbery around sort of collecting earlier. De- definitely. Snob- snobbery is the perfect way back into this topic. <laughs> the interesting thing is that when the British Museum opens in the 1750s, in the early decades, there's quite a lot of resistance, quite openly, by a lot of curators saying, we don't want the lower orders in here. We're worried about the grubby working classes coming in and getting their hands on the collections, and maybe it's going to inspire some ideas of social rebellion. It's going to make them have ideas above their station. So there is huge class anxiety because the museum is going to be this place. Relatively low numbers of people to begin with, but it's going to be this place where the classes mix. That doesn't happen very often in 18th or even into the 19th century. So the museum is actually an extraordinary place because it it takes Sloane's idea of a public uh, collection and it gives the curators this problem. So how are we going to actually manage public access? And a lot of them worry about it and feel very defensive and it just takes time for the expansion of numbers to come Some of the early diarists who go to the museum are great. Uh, There's a a man who comes down from Birmingham in the 1780s who writes in his diary about his visit to the museum and he's being taken around by the guide and and the docent and he asks him a question at a certain point, and the guy says, basically, you know, shut up, we don't have time for this. And 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 this guy from Birmingham just feels terrible, put in his place, feels very unwelcome. And, you know, has this terrible experience and then just wants to get out of there. So, so the, the curators at that time did have this, this haughty approach to, to the owners of, of the collections, right? The general public. What do you think um, Sloane would have made of the British Museum today? I, I think he, he would have been delighted. But I think also he would have initially had to make sense of what is now a very different museum. Mm. He was a physician, he was a naturalist, and what he assembled was what he would have called a natural history cabinet. So he was collecting natural specimens and artificial objects, but he wasn't doing archaeology, and he lives, he lives very interestingly for us at a time before lots uh, more is known about history and about ancient history. That story really becomes known in the 19th century. So if you think of the British Museum, you think of the Rosetta Stone, you think of the Parthenon marbles, you think of the Assyrian sculptures from Nimrud and Nineveh, you think of the Egyptian sarcophagi brought back by Howard Carter in the early 20th century. All of that ancient history was in a sense missing. Mm. Sloan like the people of his time, did not uh, see the natural world as something that changed over time. It was part of his religion. It was very orthodox Christianity to look at the natural world and see it as God's creation. All scientists at the time did that. And they didn't believe that nature really changed. They didn't have extinction. They didn't have global warming or climate change. So for Sloan, 
coming to the British Museum today would be <laughs> thrilling but shocking and disorienting because the museum moved away from the kind of encyclopedism he followed, which was God created the world and human beings and their cultures are part of that. Let's document that. God wants us to do that. He wants us to understand our world and use it for our benefit and profit. What happens in the 19th century, and, and it's another reason we don't know about Sloan, is that a lot of his things are simply dwarfed by these amazing discoveries of ancient civilizations through archaeology. So Sloan, I think, would be fascinated by this, but it would take him a moment to, to see exactly how that difference uh, came about. That was James Del Borgo. Collecting the World, The Life and Curiosity of Hans Sloan is out now in the UK, published by Alan Lane. In the US, it's due to be published later this month by Belknap Press. And you can read a review of the book in our July issue, which is currently on sale and contains articles on the murder of King John, the Dunkirk evacuation and 17th century English migration to the Americas, among other things. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, now it's time for this week's history news with our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorn. Fourteen pieces of Viking silver have been discovered on the Isle of Man. Dating back to the 10th century, the hoard is the first such find in the area. Experts believe that the silver fragments may have come from arm rings, which were high-status artefacts at the time, used to display wealth and status. In other news, Peruvian scientists have used 3D printing to reconstruct the face of an ancient female leader. It is believed that the woman, known as the Lady of Cow, lived in northern Peru over 1,700 years ago. She was buried with gold, weapons and a crown, leading experts to think that she may have been a political leader or priestess. Peru's Minister of Culture stated, We are privileged to announce this strange combination of the future and the past. Technology has allowed us to see the face of a political and religious leader from a culture of the past. Meanwhile, the area officially recognised as the site of the Battle of Towton has been extended. Fought on the 29th of March 1461, Towton was a major clash of the Wars of the Roses. It saw Henry VI's Lancastrian forces defeated by the future Yorkist king, Edward IV. Up to 28,000 men died in the battle. The North Yorkshire site is protected as a historic England-registered battlefield. The organisation made the decision to extend the site following campaigning from local history groups. OK, so that's about it for today, but we will be back again on Monday the 10th of July to talk about a fascinating 20th century spymaster. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing 
podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.